1: Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. As always, thank you for tuning in. When we last met together here in podcast land, we explored the strange, obscure story of the Nazi obsession with horses, which they took to uh, just bizarre lengths. Hi, I'm Ben. I'm Noel hope i'm not canceled after
0: my um my nazi horse intro on the last episode i thought it was funny i'm not gonna do it now though or ever again what why i don't know man i just i canceled myself after that i'm I'm kidding it i thought it was cute but this is the part of the story as we teased in the last episode where things kind of take an interesting turn not right away but if you stick with us i think you will be
1: rewarded oh 100 percent agreed so Uh, Let's ride out to the rest of the story, of course, with the help of our better third, super producer Casey Peckram. Boom! We're back in Germany. It's clear that German forces are going to lose the war, and this is where a veterinarian named Rudolf Lessing comes into play at the farm at Hostau. Our hippologist. Rao has appointed this veterinarian, Rudolf Lessing. And when the tide of war has clearly turned against Germany, this veterinarian, Lessing, and a small group of Nazi officers who also happen to love horses start to worry that these regal stallions that they love so much will be, I don't know, uh, subject to degradation. I guess, stolen or eaten. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, because it turns out that Russian forces were known for capturing enemy horses killing them and eating them.
0: Oh, uh, That's you know, That's one of those things that I've always been fascinated by. I don't want anyone to think that I'm a monster. But where do these lines in the sand get drawn? Like, we will people will eat rabbit. It's probably a little lower on the, you know, accepted food chain for most. But you definitely will hear about rabbit stew or, you know, lambs are about as cute as they come. Is it a cuteness quotient? Is it a, a functionality quotient that makes certain animals more or less acceptable to eat? Even today, I'm, I'm still a little bit perplexed by this whole continuum of like which animals you know squig people out if you eat them
1: yeah i mean i'm the worst person to ask about this because i don't really practice that line Mm. i mean i ate horse uh before and it was uh i think more for the cultural experience where i was was that in korea or japan that was in japan yeah Um, but, you, you know, still, I, I have some of the same lines like eat, horse meat is a more common thing, definitely outside of the US and Canada. Uh, but I think a lot of people have a line or two, like I would not be comfortable eating, say, a dog or a cat unless I had to to survive. You know what I mean? Uh-huh, I
0: do. And um, uh, maybe that's what was happening with the Russians. And I'm making no judgment on one way or the other. I was using this as an opportunity to broach this subject. Ooh. Casey, where do you fall on this? Uh, I I don't want to derail this too much, but I think it's fascinating. Where do you fall on this? Like, which animals are okay to eat line? Is it
3: about cuteness? Is it about
0: utility? What is it for you? I,
3: I, yeah, I think I think if we're honest, I think it's the cuteness thing. and it's also like, you know, domesticated cuteness versus like in the wild cuteness. That's probably mm. part of it too. But honestly, I mean, uh, intelligence. Right? If we're if we're gonna be fair, if we're gonna be ethical, intelligence got to be a big part of it. You know, we a lot of people eat pork, and pigs are very, very smart, and that's uh, that's kind of a conundrum. Yeah. Uh, I still eat pork yeah. all the time, but you know, I, I feel increasingly less great about it. So,
1: the octopus as well. Oh, right. You ever
0: had right, a right. fried calamari? I mean, that's a super sentient being. Casey on the case, but back to the 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 Russians and you know picking off these horses and making uh, fast work of them. Culinarily, uh, these Russians were absolutely moving in, and the walls were closing in on the Nazis. And uh, these Russians really had none of that reverence or cuddly, sweet empathy that the Germans seem to have for you know horses rather than humans, and they just couldn't be less impressed by these uh, these specimens, and they didn't differentiate them from any old run-of-the-mill nag. You know, is that a thing? Isn't a nag just like a regular horse? Or it just means a female horse, doesn't it? I
1: don't know. Well, nag can mean a small horse, but it, it often has a connotation of a older, useless horse.
0: There you go. There you go. Okay, well, I use the word. Uh, relatively appropriately there, mm-hmm. so they were again just not seeing what the Germans were seeing when it came to these horses that they ran across. But the Germans at Hostau at this uh, you know this facility, I mean, sure were they tools of the Third Reich? participating in a breeding program to create a super horse, you know, used for war. Yeah. But at the end of the day, why were they there? Cause they were the best and the brightest in the country when it came to animals. And, you know, like you say, Ben, I mean, we know that people who really truly love animals are typically good people. I'm not trying to like, you know, like soft pedal this or say these were the good horse handler Nazis, but they definitely, you know, cared about the animals under, in their charge. And they didn't want these bloodthirsty Russians coming in and making mincemeat out of their prized Leposners, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it can be a, a very good trait to like and love animals, but I don't, I don't think that necessarily make you a good person. But you know what, from the horse's perspective, these were great people, right? Fair enough. Ben. <laughs> I also want to point out one very interesting thing here. We're talking about the problem of sentience or eating meat and asking where we draw the line. Adolf Hitler himself was a vegetarian. That did not make him a good person. People on the
3: internet love to point that out. That's like, um <laughs> it's it's like a sub subsection of um what's the law? Is it Godwin's law that uh, oh. all internet? Debates will end up uh, invoking Nazi Germany at some point. Mm -hmm. Not to be confused with Gladwin's law, which is (laughs) something
1: else that I'll let Ben define. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. We should probably check with him off air. To see what what his law might be.
0: Surely, surely he has one. Really quickly, I just got to do this. Uh, I I've I've been just butchering, butchering, butchering. Not horses, but the pronunciation of this particular breed of horse. Because I just clocked myself saying it weird, and I kind of decided to do a double take. And it is lipizzanners, not liposners. <laughs> so oh, I'm just was- gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and own that one right now, as opposed to like going in and like fixing every single one. Nah, we don't do that here on Ridiculous History, but I will cop to it right now. And from here forth, we will refer to them as Liposners. So I and I followed your lead on that in
1: episode one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, the fact is, though, Ben, we cu- I could have gotten it right the first time when I read it more closely, and then gradually just kind of bastardized the pronunciation as we've made of this two-parter. And God knows we don't remember what we talk about from minute to minute, or at least that's speaking for myself. But I think we're in a good place now. We, we we're right with God, and we can
1: reasonably progress forth with the story. Yeah. Yeah. There's another character here we have to introduce. His name is Lieutenant Colonel Hubert Rudofsky. Lieutenant Colonel Hubert Rudofsky is also a horse lover and he's in charge of the care of the horses on this farm. And when Lessing and Rudofsky and the other horse-loving Nazi officers realize that the Russians are coming and will steal their horses, Or, even worse in their mind, eat them to survive. Uh, Because, you know, of course, they did not consider Russians entirely human, right? So they would think a horse is uh, way more important in the grand scheme of things. So they did something that they would have never done. They said, we need to reach out to our enemies, the American forces. We need them to help steal the horses to safety. Rudofsky says, "Okay, look, the American forces are the only way to save these horses. So he sends a spy across the border, across the German border to meet with the oncoming American forces and say, hey, I know we got a lot of stuff going on right now. I know there's a little bit of tension, Axis and allies and so on. But you guys love horses, right? You guys are cool with animals. Will you help us save ours?
0: Yeah, they're they're appealing to that kind of common bond. Whether or not they like hate each other ideologically, they can both at least agree that horses are cool and probably shouldn't be like, you know, openly slaughtered. So they they Basically, join forces in like a weird buddy comedy kind of situation. You know, uh, we what do we say? A sort of almost like an Inglorious Bastards, but a little bit kinder and gentler. It's like Clever Hans meets Inglorious Bastards.
1: Yeah, and here's what goes down. So we know that Germany surrenders on May seventh, nineteen forty-five. That's what the official announcement. But about eleven days earlier, more than a week earlier that German intelligence officer we talk about, the one that Rudofsky ended up sending, he surrenders to the U.S. 2nd uh, Cavalry Group. And when he surrenders, this is his strategy. When he surrenders, he has a bunch of photographs of these thoroughbred horses. So he's like throwing up his hands and saying, I surrender, and then like showing the pictures of the horses, saying, please save our stallions. Uh, and then... This guy was a Luftwaffe colonel, I believe. His name was Walter Holters. So he gets interrogated the way any surrendering officer would. And he says, quote, not far from here, some of the most valuable horses in the world are being sheltered. These are no ordinary horses. These are royal. Give it to me one more time, (laughs) Noel. Leposners. Right? Yeah, there we go. You're better at it than I am. No, it's not that at all. It's...
0: Lipizaners, Lipitzaners There we go, it's got a double Z, Lipizaners These are
1: royal Lipizaners from Vienna,
0: he says He did say this
1: And then uh, he says the German army Sent them to this farm, Hostau For safekeeping, now they're gonna Get captured by the Russians, and uh, They have to figure Out what they're going to Do, they sure do
0: So that's then we've got our hero of the the day or the moment, at least a Colonel James Hancock, Hank Reed, who reached out to uh, the head honcho, the man himself, General George S. Patton. And when word reaches Patton uh, that those stallions were stuck behind enemy lines in Czechoslovakia, you know, he I get I don't know. This is just a little bit of editorialization again. He must have had that same little animal you know, part of his heart and soul that that, gave, that has brought him to, to tears with the thought of these cuties getting sliced up by enemy forces. And so he decides to make this a priority and sends uh, that cavalry to save
1: them. And they have to do it in secret. Patton says, get them, meaning the horses, make it fast. The reason it has to be in secret is because the U.S. Army had already cracked an agreement with Stalin, Remember, the Stalin and the U.S. did not trust each other. They just had a common cause. So they had cracked this agreement with Stalin that they would advance no further than Germany's border with Czechoslovakia. And the horses, again, are over the border. So it's against that agreement for the U.S. to intervene. But the die is cast and their path is set. A small group of Nazi German soldiers and U.S. soldiers decide to put the war to one side, to bracket it, or as they say in corporate America, to put a pin in it Mm -hmm. for a moment and team up to get to the farm and rescue these horses. Oh, and really quickly, uh,
0: yeah, I mentioned that Patton's eyes lit up in, in the in as much as like a dead eyed, you know, military strategist genius like that size could possibly do. Uh, but he was, in fact, an actual horse lover when he heard uh, that these horses were in need of, of rescuing. And it turns out he actually was a legitimate documented horse lover. He was a huge fan of polo and he had competed in the 1912 Olympic pentathlon. I didn't know anything about Patton's uh, pre-military history. That's pretty interesting. So remember uh, Colonel Charles Hancock, Hank Lee, who was the one who told uh, Patton about this, uh, this whole horse situation in the first place. Well, uh, Patton gave the order and moments later, Hank Reed, this gentleman um, who was a horseman himself uh, uh, the commanding officer of the second Cavalry In Europe, um, he dispatched one of his soldiers and who was a writer himself from Tennessee to team up with this particular Nazi veterinarian to make this as quick and nimble an operation as possible because Patton made it very clear. Yeah. Like you said a minute ago, Ben, that this was something that had to be done in secret, but he took it a step further and said, if they were ever discovered, Patton would never, he would disavow this entire thing and, and not, you know uh, it was, so that's what makes this a black ops. Isn't that right, Ben? Isn't that what a black, like an off book kind of operation?
1: Right. Yeah. Plausible deniability, because think about it. If they're caught, and russia wants to push the case this could endanger the alliance of the allies Mm -hmm. it has the potential to which would change the course of history yep so hank reed chooses this guy from tennessee who's familiar with horses uh, a guy named captain tom stewart as he said to team up with lessing the german veterinarian so in the dark of night they move through miles of forest and the ruins of villages that have been destroyed to capture these horses and return with them to the U S forces before the Russian troops arrive. And when, uh, Lessing gets back to the farm, he takes captain Stewart and hides him in his apartment. And then he goes to negotiate with the director of the farm. So Lessing tells captain Stewart, hey, here, hide in my apartment on the farm's premises. I'm going to go to my boss, the director of the farm, and and say like, hey, let's save the horses. And then I'm even going to go to the German general in charge of this region and be like, hey, bro, don't you love horses too? Yep. (laughs) They just needed to convince the Germans that they would officially surrender the horse farm to the U.S. immediately again Because they thought the U.S. forces would treat the horses better than the Russian forces would. And Stewart actually wrote
0: an official letter to that was like a memo to German uh, commanders uh, at Hostau. And he just basically appealed to their humanity, you know, uh, and said, the Americans wish to assist you in evacuating the horses safely back across the border to Bavaria. And it hit home. Uh, these German commanders, realizing that they were toast that it was over for them as far as like you know uh prevailing in the war effort, decided to cut their losses and at least you know, okay, well, at least we can like do a good thing and they and they did. They helped them free the horses and uh, they all were guided safely back to to Bavaria.
1: Yeah, Les really made an appeal to the horse lover. In Everyone involved, right? Uh, He says it is unimportant for us to win the war here at this horse farm. It's our duty to do everything we can to save these horses. So they make a flag, uh, a white flag, the old standard of surrender out of a bed sheet. They put it up on the farm's flagpole. And then a few hours later, US forces officially take over the farm and they start making plans to get the horses to safety. And there's something, there, there's a poetic quote about this from the commanding officer of the 2nd Cavalry, from Hank Reed, and, and it stayed with me. He says, we were so tired of death and destruction, we wanted to do something beautiful. Yep. Makes perfect sense. You're
0: facing your own demise, you know? I mean, they, they know what's going to happen to them. I mean, maybe they're not going to be executed, but they know their lives are over. Uh Why not go for a moment of redemption? And I'm not saying this is enough to redeem all of the horrible acts of the Nazi party, but I see the impulse. I understand the drive there. And it's a nice place to sort of wrap up the story or begin to. I think we've got a little bit of
1: epilogue for you as well, don't we? Yeah, so the big question what happened to the horses and then also what happened to these soldiers uh, you know the the person we just quoted hank reed is he's on the us side but everybody in this war has seen so many terrible things right and you feel you feel like even though you're you're fighting for what you see as the greater good you are also committing acts of violence so how beautiful it is to maybe save something instead of destroy it. The surrender at the farm is peaceful. Lieutenant William Donald Quinlivan, I love that name, was the first of 70 U.S. troops to arrive on the scene. And once they had secured the base, the U.S. troops thought the mission was over. But on April 30th, a small German force that had decided to fight to the death Entered into a five-hour battle with the soldiers on the farm. It ended up with two U.S. troops dying, and that was one of the impetuses for the U.S. military to ship the horses all the way to the U.S. They say we're taking up, we're stealing them like you asked. The safest place we can think of is back home in the good old US of A. Imagine having to transport. Having to safely transport these live horses across Europe, that is a tall milkshake, my friends. And it felt like it was the only choice they had because food insecurity was so widespread and rampant that these horses had, despite their stereotypes about Russians, horses in any country at this point had a a very high likelihood of being killed and, and eaten
0: So in uh, fall of 1945, 151 of these remarkable horses are airlifted onto the Stephen F. Austin, which is uh, an amphibious docking ship. Isn't that right, Ben? What, is that, what does that mean exactly?
1: Yeah, there were several USS Austins, but this one was the third USS Austin, and it is an amphibious transport dock. So an amphibious transport dock is it's a ship that can uh, transport troops into a war zone by sea, usually like shooting out landing craft. Uh, And they also have nowadays they have the ability to transport helicopters and things like that. So this is a ship that has room for the horses is, is probably the most important part here.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they were allowed to flourish. Uh, and that's kind of the happy ending of the story, you know, like, I mean, it's it's like we said, uh, animals like this have no control over their situation. And it always kind of pulls on my heartstrings when you see them kind of used for nefarious purposes. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of breeding and the complications and the moral kind of dilemmas behind all of that pure breeding and stuff anyway, or crossbreeding, right? We had talked about that with the tigers. That's something that you see with like purebred dogs and dog shows and stuff. And there's a lot of feelings about things like that. So that alone um, kind of makes me twitch a little bit. But then when you know they're being bred for use in war, that's even worse. So it's great to see 151 of them at least. I mean, that, that that must have just been a fraction, Ben. I know they were trying to breed thousands and thousands of these, right? So think of the ones that, that were lost.
1: Yeah, the ones that, they, that were also never born because the breeding program did not continue. It, it's strange because this saved the entire concept of these horses, right? Because all of the existing living versions of this horse have been gathered in this one farm. And if they had not been transported out to the U.S, they probably would have been lost, you know, whether eaten, whether dying of starvation, etc. So in the midst of all the chaos and terror and inhumanity, or in horsemanity, maybe, of World War II, uh, it's inspiring that there is this one tale uh, wherein people put aside the war that they had pledged to fight in to save some animals it does tug on the heartstrings and so in a way you guys i think we found a happy ending here we absolutely did
0: and I think there's no better place to wrap up than with a happy ending. Uh, not to mention, we're 34 minutes and 18 seconds into this recording. And despite a little peek behind the curtain, guys, some of my moments of not picking up the baton when passed to me because dealing with uh, one of the other byproducts of, of our jobs here in Podcast, uh, it's probably going to shrink down to maybe a little shorter than that. But I think it's a respectable episode and a respectable two parter. And I really appreciate you, Ben, and you, Casey, for joining me on this journey.
1: Yeah, back at you. I'm I'm watching a, a fantastic storm gathering outside of my window, so I'm going to go hang out in the patio and uh, probably think a little bit more about obscure, inspiring stories from World War II. Uh, we'd love to hear your suggestions in this vein. Uh, So hoof it on over to the Internet where you can find us on uh, Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, We recommend our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians, if you want a good historical chuckle or two. And uh, you can find us as individuals as well.
0: If you wish, you may find me on the internet, uh, on the Instagram exclusively at How Now Noel Brown, where you can find, I, don't know, I do a lot of my stories, you posting cooking stuff and uh, video game nerd stuff and uh, uh, things, hanging out with my kid, and if, if that's something that you're into,
1: I'm there. And I am on Instagram in a burst of creativity as at Ben Bolin. I am on Twitter as at Casey Pegram fan number one. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm. I'm. kidding. I haven't started that account yet, Casey. But that—that's your—that's your alt someone- account, right, Ben? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> that just means someone else is going to start it for us. Uh, you can find me at at Ben Bolin HSW on Twitter. Thanks, as always, to Jonathan Strickland, aka the Quister.
0: Huge thanks to Christopher Haciotis here in spirit Alex Williams who composed our theme Research Associate Extraordinaire Gabe Luzier I did that because it rhymed with extraordinaire uh, I wouldn't pronounce it extraordinaire So why should I pronounce it Gabe Luzier And he's never really told us how to pronounce it So I think it's open season on pronunciation Of Gabe's last name He as refuses far as I'm concerned. to tell us He is a real pill about that And <laughs> I think we're going to have to have a discussion We've got to have you back on the show, Gabe Oh, I had a blast with that one. Another respectable two-parter. Uh, uh, what did I... I think I left uh, out super producer Casey Pagram. Huge thanks to you, my friend. What's your takeaway on
3: this uh, epic horse adventure? This is a second horse episode in as many weeks. I- I'm just wondering if, like, Clever Hans was sighted down in Argentina, like, after, you know, <laughs> things... I don't know. Was that World War II? No, that was World War One,
2: right?
0: So mm. maybe yeah, the timeline would be a little bit off for him being part of this story, but you're right, Casey. Maybe he just... I don't know, maybe he made his his grand getaway. Maybe Clever Hans is on an island with Tupac and the white tiger that mauled uh, Chris Roy, whatever his name is. No, he died, not the tiger. Too soon. Sorry, guys. I made this a real bummer at the end. You really brought it down, though.
1: (laughs) Uh, I can can take us from a bummer to a groan. I am finally, after two episodes able to tell you guys some terrible horse jokes that was saving for the end? did you hear about the man who went to the hospital with six plastic horses inside him? What do you mean? like in his heart? like, like just like, in his like, body the doctors oh, oh God the doctors described his condition as stable. Oh.
4: <laughs> I
0: oh no I thought this was like some sort of like mega fail story where the guy had shoved a bunch of plastic horses uh, up his body. um okay just i think uh, we're done with this show i think we've done all the things and we're just like punchy because it is 6 uh, 15 on a friday and i think we still have some ads to do so how about we'll just see you next time folks
1: how do you make a small fortune on horse racing start with a large fortune